Holy Spirit over and over until you call us into your heavenly kingdom forever. God, we pray for our hearts and minds this morning that they would be open to the hearing of your word, that I would preach it faithfully, and that our ears would hear it well. We pray, God, for our brothers and sisters gathered uh, around this city, especially uh, this morning as we celebrate what you have done for 10 years downtown. God, we pray that you are with our brothers and sisters at the other churches that have been spared from this work. We, we pray for our brothers and sisters at Gateway Community Church, and we pray that they would be worshiping in spirit and truth, and that they would be convicted by the hearing of your word, and that they would be uh, ministers and evangelists of your good news in their community. We pray for our brothers and sisters in all Brooklyn who are also gathering this morning, and they are trying to, to stabilize a church in a, in a new community, and we pray that the fruitfulness of that labor would never dry up. We pray, Father, for our brothers and sisters at Gateway West Church. God, we ask that uh, they would hear uh, Pastor John, and that um, you would give Pastor John grace as he uh, continues to feel at home in a new church, and that you would guide and direct his leading to shepherd that congregation well. We pray for our brothers and sisters at Heights Church, that you would continue the good work that you're doing there, that many would hear of your great name and come and worship this morning. God, we praise you for all these works and so many more in this city and beyond this city as your saints gather on the Lord's Day to worship you. So now, God, uh, to our hearts to praise you in the hearing and the studying of Scripture. It's in the strong name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. I was in sixth grade. Um, that's a bad year, right? Like, 12, um, my son is 12, um, you don't realize it yet, but you're a really bad person, uh, 12 year olds are really bad people, um, when I was in sixth grade, I remember this clearly, I don't remember the details of how this got started. Um, and it's probably best that I don't. We're a substitute teacher, and substitute teachers in sixth grade, that is, if 12-year-olds are the worst of, of, of humanity, substitute teachers in sixth grade are the best of humanity, I think. Um, and I don't know why this substitute teacher kind of had a bad name, because she was a really nice woman. Uh, she loved my family which I didn't know that she knew my family, which was also bad. But <laughs> some reason, she, she got a bad name. And generally, we all heard, you know, that news that there's a substitute teacher spreads like wildfire. And the plans begin about how we're going to deal with that substitute teacher. And so, you know, in between us, in, in whispers, and in grounds and sighs, uh, we, we have developed this image of her, that she's this, this monstrous human being, and no fun, and uh, a, a thorn on our side, 
And, and, and so we, we have created this situation where she now has no authority, right? She has no power uh, over us. She has no respect from us because we've all decided before we're about running who she is and what we're going to do with her. And what we decided to do with her, I apologize now, is we decided that we were going to see Ice Ice Baby. <laughs> and I confess that although the idea was not mine, I may have been one of the ringleaders. And so, at some point on the clock, you know, a few of us, you know, just started, you know, and then a few people started joining us on the whole class is, you know, reciting all the time, man, I could do it, and I'm not, I'm ashamed of the fact that I remember all the lyrics, but it was a horrible, horrible moment. And I don't know to this day, I don't know to this day, if she knew that I, I was one of the ones who started, but I still remember. At the end of the day, she comes up to my locker, was right outside the classroom door. She comes up to me and she says, It's a shame, Chris, that some students have to act that way, isn't it? And I'm just, Yes. Yes, it is. And I'm hightailing it out of there. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Is that passive aggressive or does she really not know? Um, so I don't know how she knew my family exactly, uh, except that they lived in the community for years, and, and it wound up being the, the wife of my scoutmaster uh, a few years later. Uh, we never talked about that again. <laughs> just, um, hopefully she knew that, that I changed and uh, all is good. Uh, we, we, we're turning this passage in James chapter 4. We've been working our way through James, and it's a really short, really simple passage. And, and you know, we, we don't need uh, a, a to get too complicated or too fancy, the idea, the big idea that James has for us, it kind of leaps off the page. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. That sounds pretty simple, but we do need to unpack that. Uh, don't speak evil against a fellow Christian. Uh, and and it, we had another passage like this earlier in James that was a real short and sweet passage. Uh, and the problem with short and sweet passages is sometimes I think we don't take our time to really think through the implications of those passages because we just move them right through them to the next thing. We, we kind of stop and we study the ones that seem really hard and sometimes the ones that are really easy we just, we just glance over really quick and our reading we don't let them dig down deep into our heart. So we're going to do that this morning. And the way we're going to do that when we break this down this way we, we need to really look at the meaning of this command that James gives us. We need to look at the motivations of this command that James gives us, and we need to look at the mission of this command that James uh, gives us. It was a new word for me, but I like it, monition. All right? So we'll, we'll run with that. The meaning of the command. I mean, this is, on the surface, it seems pretty straightforward, but depending on what translation you pick up, and I know some of you, we will have the ESV, and some of you have other Bibles in front of you, uh, you might see a command that says, not to speak evil. Uh, others say, don't slander. Others say, don't criticize. One paraphrase even says, don't badmouth another Christian. So, so what's going on here? Because although those are all related ideas, they are different. There's a difference in between them. I mean, criticism isn't the same thing as slander. Uh, 
are criticism can base lenders, and slander usually involves criticism, but not always the same thing. I can, I can criticize the job someone else does, and it can be constructive criticism. It can be helpful. Um, but it can also be harmful. There, there's a way to do it well, there's a way to do it poorly. But if I'm right on the facts, if I criticize someone and I'm right on the facts, that's not slander, right? Because slander, uh, by its very nature, is something that's false. So what does James mean when he says not to speak evil? It, it's a really rare word that he uses. And when it, when it is used in the Bible, it always seems to refer to harmful speech, and, and that speech is sometimes critical, sometimes it's slanderous, but there's a couple things that, as I looked at how that word was used in the Bible, there's a couple things that always seem to be the case. Uh, first, speaking evil seems to have its roots in falsehood. And, and let me be clear that it doesn't necessarily mean that the speech is objectively false. In other words, it's not like it's always saying 2 plus 2 is 5. But the reasoning of the speech, the motivation of the speech might be rooted in a misunderstanding of who God is or what God's ways are like. So it's false in, in that sense in, in all of the cases. Uh, give you an example. One of the times it's used in the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is when Miriam and Aaron the brother and sister of Moses, go to Moses and criticize him because he married an Ethiopian. And so they're, they're speaking evil against Moses because he married a black woman. Now, Miriam and Aaron were correct. Moses did marry an Ethiopian. He did marry a black woman. So they were factually correct. But their criticism was coming from a falsehood. Their criticism was coming from a place of misunderstanding God and his ways. They, they had this idea in their head that some reason skin color should be a grounds for division among God's image bearers. So they, they complained for the wrong reasons. Their complaint was further born out of a resentment of God's favor toward Moses. So they were sort of looking for reasons to attack his character. In fact, God was so upset, though, with, with Miriam in particular, so you kind of get the idea that she was the ringleader, and this is one of my favorite parts of the Bible, that God gives Miriam uh, a skin disease or, or leprosy. In other words, uh, Miriam was upset that Moses married a black woman, so God turned her skin white. There, there is an intentional irony, I believe, in that, that this Mediterranean Jew uh, was turned white for complaining about her brother's black wife. So think on that. Um, second, speaking evil always seems to have a public or at least a community-wide implication. Uh, I couldn't find a single instance where the word was used in what was clearly a private conversation. So... And then relatedly, it's, it's typically used, but not always, uh, in situations where a person or persons is sort of delegitimized in the face of the public, in the face of the community. Um, or at least that becomes a threat 
is a possibility of the person becoming delegitimized in the community. So it comes up with a leader like Moses, but it's also coming up in situations where God is being spoken of. He is being criticized. He is being spoken evil of. And so it's undermining God. Now, now James is talking about language that's directed to a fellow brother, and that's a fellow Christian, uh, not God himself. So if we, if we want to kind of define what, what James is getting at here, I, I think we could do a pretty good job this way, that speaking evil is, is communication that leads to or could lead to a public disparagement of a fellow Christian. That can be intentional, and sometimes it's simply reckless, but that's the gist. Communication that leads to or could lead to the public disparagement of a fellow Christian. James pairs this idea with judging in the, uh, later on in this verse, and we'll get to that. But it does suggest that the evil speaking that he's concerned about is, is in particular due to an, an, an evaluation of a person's ways or their character. Okay? So speaking evil is a communication that leads to or could lead to the public disparagement of fellow Christians. So why does James want to bring this up? What are his motivations or his rationale or his reasons for this command? And I think it's important to note, first of all, what his motivation is not. Namely, James does not suggest that our motivation for not speaking evil is because it's rude. doesn't say that. He doesn't say we shouldn't do it because uh, it hurts somebody's feelings. He doesn't say we shouldn't do it because it might hurt their career or that it might hurt their reputation. He doesn't say any of those things. And that's, that's what we would expect if the world were telling us this. In fact, I'm sure that a lot of our workplaces probably have uh, codes of conduct and employee policies about how we treat other people in the workplace. And if we did these things, you know, they'd be frowned upon for some of those types of reasons. But those aren't what James points to. And, and I'll tell you why. I think because they're insignificant compared to what James is really concerned about. But secondly, those things are really poor motivators. If, if you really, uh, if your basis for treating other people well is because you don't want to be rude or you want to be socially acceptable or you want to uh, protect their career and their reputation, that's just, it's not going to last. My, uh, my Greek instructor in undergrad, he, he said something that at the time shocked me. It was a very simple thing. We were talking about some biblical passage. I don't remember what passage we were talking about. And, and, and by way of application on that passage, he said, the reason I don't cheat on my wife is not because I love her too much. It's because I love Jesus too much. And I, I mean, it's a simple idea, but it, it kind of floored me in that moment because I thought to myself, that's crazy. You know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm 20. I mean, I, I mean, I believe what he was saying was true, but like, how can you ever, you know, like just, man, like the, 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 the intensity of the emotion and feeling toward, toward a girlfriend or a fiance, just like, it's so intense. Like, how could, how could you really like love Jesus that much? And, and as I grew and, and I matured, um, I discovered that 
it's not it's not exactly the, the right thought about how could I really love Jesus more than a wife. Instead, the reality is that I must love Jesus more than my wife. It, it, it's not an option for the Christian. We, we have to love Jesus more, or as we, we sang, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. Do we, do we believe that? This isn't, my, isn't in my notes, but do we really believe that when we're singing that? Take, take my career, take my freedom, throw me in jail. Take my wife, take my child from me. But if you give me Jesus, I will be satisfied. Do we really believe that? Jesus said that's a prerequisite, by the way, for following him, didn't he? Let the dead bury their own dead. Anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is unfit for the kingdom. Are we really purely satisfied in Jesus? But on a practical level here, people will let you down. People are going to hurt you. And if they haven't hurt you, I'm going to bet that it's one of two reasons. You haven't spent enough time with them yet. Or you haven't risked enough with them. You haven't put yourself in a situation where they can hurt you. You've held back because you're afraid. You haven't put enough on the line to get hurt. You know what kind of people tell you to be a respectful person? Disrespectful people, right? What kind of people tell you to be polite? Impolite people. If we're going to be honest with who we are, what we are, and what everyone else around us is like, we are inconsistent hypocrites. And so James anchors this command on something much greater than what other people think or feel or, or where they're at with you. James anchors it somewhere higher. He actually gives us two motivations that are, that are very closely related. Motivation one, he says, speaking evil and judging the fellow Christian makes us evil speakers and judges of the law. And that's going to take a little bit of unpacking. Um, I said I was going to come back to judging, so let's do that now. Now, judging is a very very broad term in English. It means a lot of different things to a lot of different peoples, and guess what? It's a very broad term 2,000 years ago in Greek, too. It means a lot of different things in a lot of different contexts, and, and we need to know what James means when he's talking about judging, if we're going to understand this passage, because the Bible is clear that there are some forms of judging that are absolutely essential to the Christian life. There are some types of judging that we not just are optional for us, but are commanded for us to do. There are some types of judging that are good. Uh, I know sometimes people like to pack everything into judge not, lest you be judged. In that context, yes, there are certain types of judging that Jesus expressly prohibits. There are other types of judging that are expressly enjoined upon us. So we have to be clear, what, is, what does James mean when he says judging here? 
We can't throw it all out, but we can't necessarily accept all kinds of judging either. The impression we're, we're left with from James, though, um, in that we're talking about a, a type of speech that publicly disparages a brother or sister in Christ, and, and it comes with an explicit or implicit evaluation of that person. You know, it's, it's really difficult to kind of say, you know, behind someone's back, you know, whoa, <laughs> did you see what he did last night? Without the implicit and, and sort of understood judgment that what he did last night was bad. Right? We don't actually have to say that, there, but there's an implicit judgment on that. Well, why would we be bringing it up? Yeah. You know, unless it's like, oh, 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 you see what he did last night? Four home runs and 18 RBIs. You know, you know okay, um, that's different. But usually when we're, we're acting like that, right, it's, but even that, there's judgment, right? It's an implicit judgment. Okay, that's a good thing. So what does James mean when he says a person does this? They, they become a person who speaks evil of the law and judges the law. Well, if you've been with us through a series in James, I know a lot of you guys have not because we have a lot of visitors this morning. But you know that the law probably refers to the Old Testament, but not just as it is, but as the Old Testament is sort of picked up into the person of Jesus. And, and Jesus takes it and he puts it on a higher plane or on one level. Uh, Jesus insisted on keeping the moral code of the Old Testament, the, the standards of right and wrong. They can't be watered down. But it also had to be filtered through the reality that Jesus filled and fulfilled it. And so it has no power to condemn those who have faith in him. So it's on a higher plane, and yet it has no power to condemn. And so notice that in the end of, of verse 12 here, notice on the end of verse 12, James brings up the idea of the neighbor. He has shifted language from brother to neighbor. And what has James reminded us about the neighbor, except back in chapter 2, that it is the royal law, the law of the king, that we love one another as ourselves. So when we act, when we act in such a way that we publicly denigrate our fellow Christian, who is our neighbor in the truest and purest sense and complete sense, we are lawbreakers. We have violated the command to love our neighbor as ourselves. But here's, here's the real rub. When we know, when we know the law, when we know what's right, and yet we choose to act contrary to the law, aren't we saying the law is wrong? Why do you drive 35 miles per hour in a 25 mile per hour business district? On some level, you've decided, haven't you? I mean, if you just do it once by accident, you didn't see the sign, that's one thing. But you're doing it consistently. It's because on some level, you've decided that the 25-mile-per-hour limit is ineffective. Or it's uh, bad. Or that 35 seems more reasonable. In the same way, I mean, you've, you've essentially said that my version of speed limits is better, more correct, than the government's version of speed limits. I mean, how else can you parse that? Uh, so in the same way, when we show disregard for our neighbor, aren't we saying that the law, when it says to love, 
is in some way out of touch or too rigid, too inflexible, or it doesn't fit this particular circumstance in the way that I have gotten myself into it right here. I don't know that that's what Jesus is really talking about. We've decided that our actions are acceptable even though we know that the law says that they're not. What, what other conclusion can be drawn? And so James says, I know you Jews, because he's talking to Jewish Christians. I know you Jews believe the law is good, and I know you believe the law is right. So don't become its critic by your actions. But there's a second motivation that James gives that's related. James says that when you do this, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. And the problem with that is that there's only one judge. In other words, James says you've become a usurper. When you place your own moral standard above above the moral standard given in Scripture, you are placing yourself in God's chair. And Jesus will be the ultimate arbiter of our lives and deeds at the end of the age. So that's not our role. And this is why, and I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, and by getting ahead of myself, I'm saying I'm looking forward to a sermon series coming later on this year. Um, But this is connected, and, and it's important. And it is why we must have an un waveringly high view of the authority of Scripture. I, I know it's not, it's not faddish right now. It, it's not, uh, perhaps more so than any other time in Western history, that's just not the way we should look at it, we're told. But if the Scriptures are not the very Word of God, and they are, the messages of God, given as His Holy Spirit moved His people to respond to their circumstances, then if they, if they are those things, then they must be taken seriously. Every word, every sentence, every paragraph, every chapter, every, every book. And we must judge our experiences by Scripture and not judge Scripture by our experience. I'm guilty of that. And, and too often, I talk to Christians who do the same I think that it is a deep-rooted sin in the American church today that we judge Scripture by our experience instead of the other way around. And we do it in some very, very subtle ways. So there there are people who... um, Will, will pronounce that all Scripture is authoritative and, and it is infallible and it is inerrantly and it is the Word of God, but they find ways to, yeah, it's sort of like the speed limit, right? Yeah, well, 25 doesn't really mean 25. Of course, I follow, this, I follow the law all the time. You follow the law all the time. So you follow the speed limit all the time. Well, you know, the speed limits are more like eh, they're a suggestion, right? And we, we kind of do the same thing with Scripture. It's insidious. It's, it's very, very subtle but it, but it works a cancer deep, deep in our soul. And that really is the original sin, isn't it? 
each of us have rejected God's good, loving, generous rule. And we've substituted for it our selfish, hurtful, evil rule in its place. We're rebels and we're traitors. And that's the essence of sin. Yep, sin hurts other people. But James reminds us that ultimately every sin, including ones that seem as personal as this, as speaking evil against a fellow believer, are ultimately attempts to shove God off his throne and set ourselves up as the king or the queen in his place. And so that brings us to our our third point, the, the monition of the command. I don't always use alliteration in my sermons, but uh, I do usually like to try and find some sort of auditory device that makes things more memorable, and I had to pull out the thesaurus for this one. I had a couple M's. I'm like, I wonder if I can get another M, you know? And I was like, this is an awesome word. Um, so, uh, M-O-N-I-T-I-O-N, a savor for words with friends. As one dictionary puts it, a warning of impending danger. And that is exactly appropriate for this passage. Note well, James says, there is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. Now this isn't exactly the stuff we like to talk about. One of the reasons I preach expositionally, and that's a fancy word that means that you make the main point of the scripture the main point of the sermon. Short definition. And I usually, not always, but usually preach consecutively, meaning I, I go in order, chapter, verse, chapter, verse, not always, but usually. But one of the reasons I, I do that is it prevents me uh, in my weakness and my sinfulness in skipping things that are uncomfortable. Uh, skipping things that are difficult that I might arrogantly think even to myself, oh, they're just not ready for that. And let, let, let Jesus worry about whether people are ready for that. So I get to wrestle with this one now. It would be easier and less controversial if I could simply say that you shouldn't place yourself as a judge over Scripture because if you know God is good and if you do things God's way, it generally works out for you. You've probably heard that before, and I've heard that many, many times from many, many preachers, you know, that, that sometimes the way we, we sort of sell holy living, the way we encourage people toward holy living, is, you know what, if you follow God's ways, it, it generally goes better for you. And if you deny God's ways, it generally goes worse for you. And that, that would be nice if it said that, because that would be a lot easier to preach. That's not what it says. It would be easier if the text said there was one lawgiver and judge who makes life go better if you were in step with him and allows life to go worse if you're out of step with him. That might sometimes be true. I rather doubt it's generally true. And I know for certain that it's not been true for many faithful Christians throughout history. This text puts an uncomfortable dichotomy in front of us. It says that the judge, Jesus, has the power to save and to destroy. Doesn't even say, just help me out, Jesus. You know, it doesn't say he's able to save or not save. 
It says he has the power to save or to destroy. That's a warning of impending danger. That's monition. James is telling us that the true judge, Jesus, doesn't simply have authority over what's right and wrong, but has authority over your eternal destiny. The same Jesus who is God, God in the flesh, who who came and was tempted and tried in every way like us, and who was crucified on the cross and died the death that we rightfully deserve to die, and to offer his life as a ransom, a redeeming payment for all who trust in him, this same Jesus was raised to new life, having dealt with, with sin once for all, ascending to the right hand of the Father, and this same Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. And our sins, those rebellious and treacherous and treasonous acts, would rightfully condemn us on the spot. But he will either rescue us or ruin us on the basis of whether we have received him. He will either rescue us or ruin us on the basis of whether we have received him. And whether we have trusted him in who he is and what he's done on our behalf. And that's good news that he has made a way for us. But there is bad news here, and and it's worth reiterating at this point that James is writing to Jewish Christians. He's not writing to people who've never heard of Jesus. He's not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to people who, by all accounts, have accepted Jesus as Lord. And I take it that that's the majority of this room. I, I, I wonder there might be a few of you who are not, and I, I hope that's the case, and I hope you're listening. But I take that the majority of this room, because we're a church that has gathered, we're the people of God who've gathered to worship him this morning, have, are people who have ostensibly received Jesus as Lord. But if you're not in that camp, that's okay, and this is all the more true. But James is speaking to you who call yourself a Christian, but live a love-lacking lifestyle. In particular, James is concerned about a lack of love that manifests itself in this sort of slanderous, gossiping, malicious, public denigration of fellow Christians. James says, when we do that, watch out. Because we're assuming the role of judge. And when we assume the role of judge, we begin to look like people who don't know our place. We begin to look like people who don't know that Jesus is the king and that he's coming to judge. Throughout this letter, we have routinely come across this concern that the people who are called by Jesus' name aren't living a lifestyle commensurate with their calling. It's as if he's saying, be careful that you aren't too comfortable calling yourself a Christian. Because you might not be what you think you are. And a bad time to find out you're not a follower of Jesus Christ is when you're standing before Jesus Christ on the day of judgment. That's a really bad time to find out. Paul puts it differently. The Apostle Paul in in, uh, 2 Corinthians 13.5 writes, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. 
Paul, writing to Christians, says, test yourself, examine yourself, make sure you are what you think you are. James says, watch out. If you don't walk like a duck and you don't quack like a duck, you might not be a duck. Paul says, test yourself. What do you walk like? What sort of noise does your throat make? Make sure that you're a duck. But they're getting at the same basic idea. And the inevitable conclusion is that there are many who think they're ducks who aren't ducks. There are many who think that they're Christians who aren't Christians. And there will probably be some surprises on that front when we get to heaven. If you don't know Jesus, and you don't profess to be a Christian, you still face this reality that there is a just judge to whom you must give an account. He's loving enough to pay your fines, but he is just enough to punish your crimes. And the difference is in what you do with what he's done. Receiving the gift that he's done, receiving him as he is, as the God and man, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, or rejecting that provision that's made for us. So let me turn my attention back to those of us in this room who profess to be believers. How do we conduct our speech? James has given us a few opportunities to talk about our speech. But let's be very, very careful that we do not engage in the kind of destructive language that undermines our fellow Christians, that can lead to them having a, a, a poor uh, and, and denigrated and uh, debased view among the body of believers. We're, we're going to celebrate communion in a minute. And among many other things, communion reminds us that those of us who are, are called into Christ are one. That there's a unity. Paul says that we all share in the one body. And so the one loaf is broken for us because we are one. And when we act in that way, we demonstrate a disunity that suggests maybe, just maybe, we don't belong. So living a Christian life of disunity is, is not really a Christian life at all. And living a life that disparages and denigrates one another in a public way is not a Christian way to live. Now, we know that there are times uh, when things become public that are difficult to deal with. But is the goal to denigrate? Is, is, the, is the goal to debase? Is the goal to lower and, and humiliate and harm and hurt? Or is the goal in those situations to encourage, to lift up, to strengthen, to move toward repentance, to move toward holiness? It's all the difference right there. And I think we generally know which one we're up to if we're honest with ourselves. So let's pray. Father, we have many things to confess, and we will confess. But we confess now that we have often, by our lips and by our unspoken communication, served to hurt our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ.
We have whispered and we have murmured and we have gossiped and we have slandered. And so we have denied the unity that you purchased by the blood of your son Jesus. Forgive us for this crime. May we be introspective. May we test ourselves to see whether our actions are truly commensurate with our calling. Let us be honest appraisers of us. Give us a measure of your spirit to convict us of our sin. May those who have deluded themselves and may those who have never known you in any sense, God, be humbled this morning, convicted of their sin, and fall to their metaphorical knees and beg your forgiveness, which you have promised by your blood. We ask these things in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay. Um, we, we are going to uh, celebrate communion here. Uh, we may have run out of cups this morning. Um, we didn't know we were low, and it wouldn't have been an issue. But uh, I will stand up here. We have, we have some uh, styrofoam cups. It's a little, I know, it's not the little fake glass, but uh, I will fill those as, as necessary so that people um, get them. And one other note, we have typically been having uh, some gluten-free bread and some regular bread, and they all got mixed together. So if, you, if, if it's a real issue for you, just be aware that it may not be gluten-free enough. Um, I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verses 23 through 32. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, 